ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ذلك praise belongs to Allah we praise him seek his help and assistance and forgiveness and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds whomever Allah guides there is no one that can lead him astray and whomever Allah leads astray there is no one that can guide him I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone and that he has no partners and I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallama is his slave servant and his messenger we would like to begin this lecture this evening the seventh in our series of lectures concerning fiqh al-hadith from the explanation of umdat al-ahkam the sharh of umdat al-ahkam by Sheikh Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman ibn Salih Ali Bassam uh, this evening before mentioning the hadith that we will take uh, for tonight we would like to uh, briefly review those hadith which we took in the last meeting hadith number 11, 12 and 13 and uh, those hadith are concerning the manners or the adab related to the use of the uh, bathroom or when one goes to relieve their self or to answer the call of nature and the first hadith which we took is the hadith of Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallama kana idha dakhala al-khala' qala Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubfi wal-khaba'ith or according to some of the scholars Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubfi wal-khaba'ith and we said that uh, this in this hadith Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallama whenever he intended to enter the call of nature uh, he used to before entering the place where he was going to relieve himself he used to supplicate with this dua O Allah I seek refuge in you from evil and from the evil ones the shayateen or according to uh, some of the scholars the interpretation of khubufi wal khaba'ith is the male and female shayateen in any case both of these uh, readings khubufi and khubufi are both acceptable and correct and the meaning is very similar except that the reading of khubufi is more comprehensive because its meaning is general uh, seeking refuge from all evil and al khaba'ith the evil ones the shayateen etc. Uh, from this hadith we said that there are three main points derived the first of them is that it is mustahab or recommended beloved or encouraged that a person when they intended to enter the place of relieving oneself that they should supplicate to Allah before entering so that they may seek protection and safety from the shayateen who are always making efforts 
to corrupt or to spoil the Salat of the Muslim. Number two, he said that the harm of the Shayateen or one of the harms of the Shayateen is that they cause the person to spoil their purity or their state of purity uh, meaning for some najas or najas or unclean thing to spoil their clothing or their body so that they would also nullify the salat so we should seek refuge from them to seek protection from their harm or their evil and th- three he said that from this hadith also we understand that it is obligatory it is wajib to avoid any uncleanliness or unclean things and najasat those things that spoil our state of purification whether by touching our clothing our body or otherwise uh, and that we should seek the means to protect us from these unclean things as it has been authentically reported from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa that the one who doesn't seek to protect himself from urine that would be one of the causes of his punishment in the grave and the hadith concerning this inshallah we will discuss this evening uh, the next hadith we took is the hadith of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu who said that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallama said إِذَا عَتَيْتُمُ الْغَائِطِ فَلَا تَسْتَقْبِلُوا الْقِبْلَةِ بِغَائِطٍ وَلَا بَوْلٍ وَلَا تَسْتَدْبِرُوهَا وَلَكِنْ شَرِّكُوا أَوْ غَرِّبُوا that is, that whenever any one of you goes to the place where they answer the call of nature, they should not turn their faces towards the direction, the Qibla, the direction of prayer, towards Mecca or the Kaaba, if they had to relieve themselves by urin- defecating or urinating, nor should they turn their backs towards the Qibla, but they should turn towards the east or the west. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, radiallahu anhu, the narrator of this hadith, then said, فَقَدِمْنَا الشَّامِ فَوَجَدْنَا مَرَاحِضَ قَدْ بُنِيَتْ نَحْوَ أَوْ قِبَلْ الْقِبْلَ أَوْ الْقَعْبَةِ فَنَنْحَرِفُ عَنْهَا وَنَسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى He said, after this, these instructions had come to us from the Prophet ﷺ, and we had went on to Asham, to the area of the world which is known today as Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, and so on, we found that the places the toilet areas had been built in such a way that when one uses them you are facing the Qibla or the Kaaba so we used to turn somewhat to the side and we used to ask forgiveness of Allah the Most High uh, and from this hadith we said that there are a number of points also derived from this hadith the Shaykh mentioned five of them the first of them from this hadith we understand the prohibition of facing or turning our back towards the Qibla at the time of answering the call of nature. Number two, the command or the order that one should turn in another direction or turn to the side away from the Qibla at that time when they are in that condition of answering the call of nature. And number three, the third point which is a rule that we should understand and keep in mind as it will help us to understand how to apply the evidences that came in the Qur'an and the Sunnah so that we may have a fiqh or an understanding of the deen 
this qaida or rule is that the commands that come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and through his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as well as the prohibitions are general for all of the ummah that whatever commands or prohibitions came to us came to us through the revelation of Quran and the authentic sunnah we should understand that they are general for all of the ummah including everyone and this is the original ruling but sometimes a command or a prohibition may come and it is khas not am, not general but it is special or peculiar or particular to some members of the ummah excluding others and one such type of one such command is the command in this hadith where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said وَلَكِنْ شَرِّقُوا أَوْ غَرِّبُوا أَوْ غَرِّبُوا يَعْنِي don't turn your face nor your back towards the Kaaba but turn to the east or turn to the west and this is a command that was particular to the people of Medina or those who are in the same direction as the people of Medina such that if they turn to the east or the west they would be turning away from the Kaaba and also we can understand that this command is also applicable to others in that the general meaning of it is that we should not turn towards the Kaaba turn our face or our back towards the Kaaba uh, we should turn in the other direction so that neither our face, face nor our back is towards the Kaaba whether it's east or west or any other direction the important thing that we should not uh, face nor turn our back towards the Kaaba this rule though is an important rule uh, the rule that the commands or the prohibitions in the Quran and authentic sunnah are general for the ummah and we should understand them as such unless there is a proof uh, which limits them to a particular individual or individuals from the ummah in general the commands and prohibitions are for all of the Muslims unless there is a proof otherwise uh, number four we said that the wisdom behind this command or this prohibition is the respect and glorification of the Kaaba which is our direction of prayer and it is the first house of worship built on the earth for the worship of Allah and then we said finally number five from this hadith we also can understand that the intended meaning uh, where Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu said Nastaghfirullah ta'ala that we used to seek the forgiveness of Allah the meaning of al-istighfar or seeking forgiveness here we said that it is al-istighfar al-qalbi Yani it is seeking forgiveness through the heart la al-lisani yani it is not saying astaghfirullah by our tongue while we are in the condition of answering the call of nature in the bathroom or toilet area because the mentioning of the name of Allah by the tongue in such a condition where the aura or the private parts are exposed and the person is answering the call of nature in that condition mentioning the name of Allah uh, is prohibited the last hadith that we took, hadith number 13, is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhuma. May Allah be pleased with him and his father. He said, Irtaqaytu fawta zahri bayti Hafsa. That I went up on top of the house of Hafsa radiallahu anha. May Allah be pleased with her his sister and, the, and she was the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he said فَرَأَيْتُ النَّبِيُّ sallallahu alayhi wa sallam يَقْدِي حَاجَتَهُ مُسْتَقْبِلَ الشَّامِ مُسْتَدْبِرَ الْكَعْبَ then I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam answering the call of nature he was facing a sham yeah, the direction of Bayt al-Maqdis in uh, Jerusalem and he had 
Mustadbira al-Kaaba, his back towards the Kaaba. Uh, here in this hadith we said that there is some difference of opinion amongst the scholars uh, in how they understood these two hadith, the last two hadith, one which prohibits us from turning our back or our face towards the Kaaba, and the second in which Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma said that he saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam turning his face towards Asham and his back towards the Kaaba. How can we make reconciliation between these apparent, apparently conflicting commands or prohibitions or actions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? And we said that the scholars in this issue are differed. One of the opinions, we said that there were three main opinions. The first of them is that facing or turning your back towards the Qibla is absolutely prohibited in any case or in any circumstance. And this was the opinion of the narrator of the hadith Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. And it was also the opinion of Mujahid and al-Nakhai, Ibrahim al-Nakhai, rahimahumullah, from amongst the Tabi'een and also Sufyan al-Thawri, rahimahullah. This was also the opinion of Ibn Hazm, al-Imam Ibn Hazm. Uh, and it was the opinion of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and his student ibn al-Qayyim rahimahumullah and uh, they used as proof for their opinion that is prohibited the hadith such as the hadith of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari where he narrated that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prohibited anyone turning their face or their back towards the Kaaba the second opinion are those who said that it was absolutely permissible yeah, and without any restriction it's permissible and that was the opinion of Aisha radiallahu anha, Urwa ibn al-Zubair, her nephew, Rabia, Dawud al-Zahri, uh, and others from amongst them using as proof the hadith, such as the hadith, the second hadith, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma, uh, in which it was reported authentically that he saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam turning his back towards the Kaaba, and therefore it was their opinion that is permissible. The third opinion, and inshallah is the most correct or the closest opinion, it is uh, a combination of both hadiths, the prohibition and the act of the Prophet ﷺ doing such, uh, combining them or reconciling between, between them. It is the opinion of the Imams, Malik, Al-Shafi'i, Ahmed, Ishaq, and others, uh, including Abdullah ibn Umar and Al-Sha'abi, and, and those who said, uh, they said that this issue cannot be يعني, defined as being an absolute prohibition nor an absolute permission but we would say that it is prohibited if the person is out in the open field like in the desert where they have the choice to turn away from the Kaaba easily without any difficulty it's prohibited for them in that case to face the Kaaba or turn their back towards it uh, while on the other hand the person who is in a building or an enclosed structure a fixed structure which may make it difficult for them to turn away from the Kaaba, in that case it's permissible, in that case. So they said that it's prohibited in one case and permissible in another case. In any case, it is better that a person, even if they are in a building, in a fixed area, they should still try to turn themselves somewhat away from the Kaaba, so as not to face the Kaaba uh, without it being a necessity, if they can avoid it. Uh, this is the best opinion, insha'Allah, because um, the opinion we said that says that it is absolutely prohibited nullifies or negates or denies 
or uh, ignores the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar that he saw the Prophet وسلم, turning his back towards the Kaaba and the opinion of those who said that it's absolutely permissible also ignores the clear statement of the Prophet وسلم, narrated by Abu Ayyub al-Ansari anhu, that the Prophet وسلم, prohibited anyone to turn their face or their back towards the Kaaba and the third opinion يعني, accepts both of these evidences uh, acknowledges them, considers them, and tries to make reconciliation between them. And we said that this is also a general rule in any case where there are apparent or any apparent contradictory evidences from the Quran or Sunnah, that the first option is that we should try to reconcile between them so that we don't nullify or negate any one of them. And in the absence of that possibility, then we look at which evidence came earlier, and we said that the one that came later abrogates or nullifies the earlier one. The later one is the standing rule. That's the one that we go by. And in the case where we don't know the history or the tariq or the date when these evidences came to us, and we cannot determine which one is earlier or later, in that case we make tarjih, or we try to see which one is stronger and more applicable to the issue at hand, and we take that evidence as a proof and follow it. This is the summary of what we talked about last week. And uh, inshallah this evening we would like to take three more hadith related to the same area. Uh, related to manners or adab of answering the call of nature. And the hadith in this area are many. We cannot take them all. But tonight, inshallah, we would like to take three of them uh, and discuss each one briefly and the rulings or the ahkam, judgments that come from those hadith. The first hadith, hadith number 14, is a hadith reported by al-Bukhari and muslim on the authority of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu. أنه قال كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يدخل الخلاء فأحمل أنا وغلام نحوي إداوة من ماء وعنزة أو عنزة يستنجي بالماء it is reported that Anas ibn Malik anhu said that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم whenever he used to go out to the place where he answered the call of nature to relieve himself. He said, Anas, who was a young man, and he was in the service of the Prophet ﷺ, he said, I and another young boy, similar to me in age, used to carry idawatan min ma'in, that is, a small container made from leather hide, uh, carrying water, and also a spear, or a small stick with a spearhead on the end of it. Uh, then the Prophet ﷺ used to clean himself or make istinja with that water. Um, the, meaning of the, the general meaning of this hadith, the Shaykh says that the servant of the Prophet ﷺ, Anas ibn Malik anhu, mentions that the Prophet ﷺ, whenever he used to go to the place to answer the call of nature, that Anas said he and another young boy used to go with him carrying his water for purification, that which he used to clean himself with after relieving himself. And it was water in a small container or leather skin that they used to carry the water in. And also he said that they used to come, him and the other small boy used to bring uh, some screen or curtain or cloth or something uh, to cover the Prophet ﷺ from anyone who might pass by seeing him. 
they used to take that spear or that small stick with a spearhead and stick it in the earth and then they would put a piece of cloth over it uh, in order to screen the Prophet from anyone passing by. From this hadith, the Shaykh mentions four points. Uh, the first of them is the permissibility of using water alone as a means of cleaning oneself after answering the call of nature. That is permissible to use water alone without using anything else. And the use of water alone is better than using stones alone. As you know, a stinja can be made by using three or an odd number of stones or other hard substance, or it can be made by using water. So here the Shaykh said that in this hadith we understand it's permissible to use water alone, as the Prophet ﷺ only used water on that occasion. And he said that it is better to use water alone than to use stones alone, because water is a better cleaner, it's more thorough. But what is even better than that, using water alone, is to combine between the use of stones and water, to use both of them. To, to use some uh, solid substance and, and also to use water along with it. In that case, you should use the stones first and then after, use the water. Yeah, and after cleaning oneself somewhat by using some hard substance, then complete the cleaning by the use of water. And in this way, the best and most perfect form of cleaning can take place. Al-Imam al-Nawi, rahimahullah, <coughs> says concerning this matter, the use of water or the use of stones or combining them, he said that the people of the early generations and the later generations, as salaf wal khalaf, those of the earlier generations from amongst Sahaba and Tabi'een and those who came after them, as well as those of the later generations, have consensus on this fact and included amongst them he said are the Ahl al-Fatwa min a'imat al-Amsar that is the people who have the right or the authority or the ability to make legal rulings from amongst the Imams of various cities in the Muslim land it is agreed upon by them that the best thing in making istinja is to combine between the use of some solid substance and in those days they used to use Stones, along with the use of water. First, use the stove as much of the najasa or uncleanliness as possible, and then to use the water, so as to uh, reduce the possibility of coming of the hand coming directly in contact with that najasa or unclean substance. Yeah, I need to use the stone first. Uh, to remove as much as possible of the najasa and then uh, to use the water afterwards. In that case, if anyone intended to use only one of these two means, which is permissible to use any one of them, both are permissible, you may use only stones or you may use only water. Uh, even if both of them are, are available, it's permissible to only use one. But if anyone is going to use only one, then water is better. And using both of them, combining them, is better than that. 
that's the first point. Yani the permissibility of using water alone or using stones alone or combining them together and that's the best thing. The second point from this hadith is we understand that a Muslim at the time of going to answering answer the call of nature is expected to prepare themselves. Yani to to bring with them whatever they may need in order to uh, complete the cleaning process so that they would not find themselves in a position where they would have to stand up and go to search for something to use to clean themselves. Yani, you should go prepared uh, with whatever you need in order to clean yourself whenever you have to enter the call of nature. Number three, that it is expected that the person who goes to answer the call of nature should take precautions and be concerned and be protective of guarding themselves from the view of anyone. Because for anyone to look at the aura of another person, it is prohibited. It is prohibited. So that's why they used to carry the spear or the stick with the spearhead in order to stick it in the earth and then hang over it some cloth to cover the Prophet ﷺ from anyone seeing him. And the fourth and final point, the permissibility of using young children, even if they are free or non-slaves. Yeah, and it's permissible to use them for such service. An adult might use a child to help them uh, if they need, in such case as they're going to relieve themselves or to answer the call of nature. Hadith number 15, the hadith of Abu Qatada al-Harith ibn Rabi'iyan al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said إِذَا شَرِبَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلَا يَتَنَفَّسْ فِي الْإِنَاءِ وَإِذَا أَتَى الْخَلَاءَ فَلَا يَمَسَّ ذَكَرَهُ بِيَمِينِهِ وَلَا يَتَمَصَّحْ بِيَمِينِهِ This hadith is recorded in Al-Bukhari and Muslim uh, on the authority of Abu Qatada Al-Harith Al-Ansari radiallahu anhu that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said if any one of you drinks يعني, drinks those things which are lawful in America, if you say drinking, people think uh, something else. But alhamdulillah, our hearts and our minds are clean. If anyone drinks, if any one of you drinks something, فَلَا يَتَنَفَّسْ فِي الْإِنَاءِ Then he should not breathe in the container that he is drinking from. وَإِذَا أَتَى الْخَلَاءَ And if one goes to the place of answering the call of nature, فَلَا ذَكَرَهُ بِيَمِينِهِ Then he should not touch his private parts with his right hand. And he should not hold his private part with his right hand. وَلَا بِيَمِينِهِ Nor should he clean himself with his right hand. Nor should you use the right hand to clean yourself. Uh, this um, narration of the hadith is the wording from Bukhari, as I found in Al-Ulu Wal-Marjan, the combination of Al-Bukhari and Muslim, and also in Fatul Bari. And there are a number of different narrations of this hadith, but they are all يعني, 
the meaning is the same but the wording is slightly different from one narration to another. In any case, the Shaykh here says in the meaning of this hadith that this hadith, this noble hadith consists of three points or three paragraphs or three sentences which contain precious advices and valuable benefits which polish and improve the conduct and manners of the human being and causes him to avoid or to be far from filthy things, harmful things and diseases. Two of these sentences and لا يمسى ذكره that the person should not hold his private parts with his right hand while he is urinating. ولا يزيل النجاسة من القبل أو الدبر that the person should not remove the najasa or unclean matter from the front or from the back with his right hand or her right hand because the right hand is exclusively for the use of clean things and for touching those things which are desirable such as for eating and drinking so if someone touched some unclean matter and their hand became clean and then they touched food or drink or shook hands with someone then this is something detestable undesirable and disliked perhaps in the cause or in the case of doing such they might even carry some undetectable or unseen germs or disease. So these two sentences that the person should not touch their private area during the course of urinating nor should they clean themselves when urinating or defecating by the use of the right hand. The third sentence or point from this hadith is the prohibition of breathing, breathing in the container which one is drinking from because of the many harms that could come from such and from those harms is that the person who would drink after the first person the one who would drink after them might dislike such when they saw the person breathing inside the container that they are drinking from in fact some people won't even drink after another person even their own family members but in Islam it's permissible and Muslims are very keen about cleanliness uh, the Prophet ﷺ used to drink from a container and pass it to the one who was on his right and they would pass it around into every, until every person who was sitting with him drank from the same container this shows that it's permissible to drink from the container of another person especially from amongst the Muslims and the Muslims are clean basically uh, in any case, if someone, no one should breathe in the container that they are drinking from, this might be disliked by the one who may drink after them, as well as it's possible that some substance may come from their nose while they are breathing in that container, which might carry some germs or something unclean that would defile the water or carry some uh, any disease-causing germ if the one who was drinking and breathing in that container was sick at that time so we should take precautions from such 
in order to protect others. And even the Shaykh says that it's possible that the person who breathes in the container while they are drinking might even cause harm to their own self uh, at the time when they are breathing into that container or when they are breathing out. Finally, he says that the legislator, that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and he also legislates through his Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the legislator does not command anything. And this is also a qaida, a general rule that we should always keep in mind, that the legislator does not command anything except that it has in it that which is beneficial or good and that which is for the betterment or correction of the people. And on the, in the same way, the legislator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, does not prohibit anything except that thing which has in it something which is harmful or that which causes corruption. So whenever we look at the commands and the prohibitions that came to us through the Qur'an and authentic sunnah, we should know, even if we don't understand the wisdom behind it, we should know that whatever Allah has commanded, it is for some khair, some good or beneficial thing, or salah, betterment or correction of the people, and whatever Allah has prohibited, it is because of some dara or harmful thing, or fasad or corruption. So even if we don't know the wisdom, we accept Allah's commands and prohibitions, and we follow them because Allah is the all-knowing and the all-wise. Here the Shaykh mentions that there is some ikhtilaf concerning this hadith over whether or not this prohibition is, does it mean that the thing is absolutely haram or is it makruh, undesirable or detestable? And there are two opinions. The zahiriya or the literalist who said that this uh, prohibition means that it is based on the apparent meaning of the hadith that is absolutely haram to do such. That what has been prohibited here, it is haram. Yani it is haram to touch or to clean yourself with your right hand or to touch your private parts with your right hand while urinating or to uh, breathe in the container. That all of this is haram based on the apparent meaning of the hadith. And the other opinion is the opinion of the jamhur or the majority of scholars that it is makruh and that this prohibition is for the purpose of uh, developing good manners and teaching the people that which is better for them or more beneficial. From this hadith, there are seven points. The first of them is it has been prohibited to touch the private parts with the right hand while urinating. The second of them is that it is prohibited to make istinja or to clean oneself with the right hand, using the right hand. The third one is that it is prohibited to breathe in the container that one is drinking from. And perhaps we might remember the hadith in which the Prophet wasallam said that when anyone drinks, they should take three, three breaths. But that is another hadith and the meaning of it is different than what we are talking about here. The meaning of taking three breaths means that the person should take a drink and remove the container from their mouth and breathe out, not in the container, and then take another drink and remove the container from their mouth and breathe, and then take another drink and remove the container from their mouth and breathe. That is, the person should drink 
by taking the drink in portions, not drink it all down at one time. But they should take a little bit and take a breath. <laughs> take it easy. <laughs> take another drink and take a breath. Not like the camel's drink. Drink it all down at one time. So here the taking of a breath doesn't mean breathing in the container, but it means taking a breath from the drink. Yeah, and you take a rest. Uh, then he says also from this hadith we understand that we should try to avoid and stay far away from filthy or unclean things. And if someone was forced to touch that which is unclean, then they should use the left hand, not the right. In the case where you have no option. Number five, he said, in this hadith also, there's clarification of the sharf and the fadl of the right hand over the left hand, yeah, and the honored position or status and superiority of the right hand over the left hand in the Islamic Sharia when the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number six, he said, Al-i'tinab al-nadhafa amatan ya'ani, giving attention and care to cleanliness in general. And in this hadith, we understand that Muslims in general are expected to give attention and be careful about cleanliness, especially the things that they eat and drink, from which uh, some... If those things are contaminated, contaminated, they it might cause harm to their health. So we should be careful in general and give care to cleanliness. And finally, he says from this hadith, we also understand the exalted nature and the loftiness of the Islamic Sharia. Because this Sharia يعني, has ordered us with everything that is beneficial and has warned us from everything that causes harm. And we can also see this in many of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in the ayahs of Qur'an. How the Qur'an uh, orders us with whatever is good and for the betterment of humanity and creation. And it prohibits us from whatever is harmful. Whether it's physically harmful, spiritually harmful or otherwise. This is the, shows the great nature of the Islamic law above all other ways of life that we find the people following in this world today or as well as in the past. The last hadith which we want to mention is hadith number 16 and it is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhuma may Allah be pleased with him and his father he said marra an nabiyyu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bi qabrain that the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam passed by two graves faqala innahuma la yu'adhibani wa ma yu'adhibani that verily these two are being punished or tormented or whatever but they are not being punished about a kabir or something major one of them he didn't used to cover himself or protect himself or take precautions to protect himself from urine when he entered the call of nature. As for the other, the second of them, he used to go amongst the people carrying tails. Yeah, and he taking something from one person to another in order to make problems between the people. And Namima. 
فأخذ أو ثم أخذ جريدة رطبة فشقها نصفين. Then the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم took a leaf or a branch from the palm tree and split it or divided it into two in half. فغرز في كل قبر واحدة. Then he planted or stuck in each one of those two graves one half of that leaf or plant or branch that he had split in half. فقالوا يا رسول الله. Then they said, O Messenger of Allah, لما فعلت هذا? I think this uh, expression or this sentence is not found in the first narration, uh, in the narration of uh, Muslim, but it's found in the narration of Bukhari. فقالوا يا رسول الله لما فعلت هذا? They said, O Messenger of Allah, why did you do this? قال لعله يخفف عنهما ما لم يبسا. Perhaps it will reduce. Uh, يعني the punishment that they are suffering from as long as it remains fresh or moist. There are two narrations, there are many narrations of this hadith in Al-Bukhari and also in Muslim. And I think we uh, gave you two narrations with their references with the English translation. Uh, there is some slight difference in the two narrations that's very important that we pay attention to it. Uh, first, Uh, the first thing <coughs> he says, uh, he defines some of the words in this hadith and he says, Yamshi bin Namima. It means that the person carries some words from one person to another person with the intention of causing trouble between them. With the intention of causing trouble between them. This is Namima. Uh, also, He says that in a narration of this hadith, it is reported that Abu Mas'ud said that the place where the Prophet ﷺ planted that twig or that branch was at the head of the grave. And this is reported authentically in a Sahih hadith. Then uh, he gives the general meaning of this hadith. And here we will try to focus on the differences between the two narrations and what can be understood from this hadith. He says that the Prophet ﷺ was with some of his companions when he passed by two graves. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to him or uncovered for him what was in those two graves and the Prophet ﷺ saw the people in those two graves being punished. He saw it. Then he ﷺ informed his companions about this. تَحْذِيرًا لِأُمَّتِهِ وَتَخْوِيفًا As a warning to his ummah, to his followers. As a warning. And also to put fear in the hearts of the people from such actions. To let them fear such a thing. That it is very serious. It is a dangerous thing. Because the two people in those graves, they were being punished for a sin or an act of disobedience that was relatively easy to avoid and to stay far away from. For whoever Allah grants success. Yani it's not something difficult to protect yourself from an najasa when relieving oneself. And it's not so difficult to avoid an namima. 
And it's expected from a Muslim that they should avoid such things. Yani, the care of cleanliness and the avoiding of bringing harm between the people or causing trouble between the people by carrying someone what someone said to someone else for the purpose of making trouble between them. This is something that to whom Allah has given success, yani, it's relatively easy to avoid. Yet, those people fell into it and they were punished severely for it. One of those people who were being punished, he didn't use to take care to protect himself when he went to urinate or to relieve himself. So some najasa got on him, on his body or on his clothing as a result of his carelessness. And the other was a shaitan who used to go back and forth between the people with tails trying to cause enmity and hatred between the people and especially between those who are relatives and friends. He used to go to one of them and take something from him and to another. <laughs> and then he would go to another and take something from him to another in order to uh, cause the people to cut off relations and to يعني, have disputes and argumentation amongst them. The religion of Islam has come to develop al-mahabbah, يعني, love and friendship between the people and to reduce or to cut off arguments and disputes. So how can someone engage in such yeah, contrary, exactly contrary to what the religion of Islam stands for? In spite of all this, the Prophet wasallam, his compassion and kindness and sympathy overcame him for those two people who were being punished. And he took this uh, branch or leaf from the palm, this moist or fresh branch from a palm tree, uh, and split it in half and planted it in each, each half in one of the graves of those two people. Then the companions of the Prophet asked him about this strange thing that they saw him doing. It was something strange to them. They hadn't seen such before, nor did they uh, understand what he was doing. So they asked him, what are you doing? And he said to them, perhaps Allah will reduce the punishment of these two as long as this branch or twig remains moist or fresh. The scholars differed on this issue, and it is an issue that, uh, and there is legitimate difference of opinion about it, but the correct opinion, inshallah, is clear. They differed about, whether, about the issue of putting a leaf or a branch or a flower or a plant upon the graves of those people who died. And we'll find in some Muslim countries that they put so many plants and branches and trees and flowers based on their understanding of this hadith. Some of the scholars said that it was mustahab or encouraged or recommended to put something on the grave of the dead person because they understood that this action of the Prophet was actually a general legislation. Yani it was meant to be followed by others. It was, when he did it, it means that it should be done by It is moist. It is praising Allah at the grave of that person as long as it remains moist. It is يعني, making tasbih 
or praising Allah or declaring يعني, Allah being free from any defect or shortcoming or whatever they have attributed to him of weakness. So they said that perhaps the person who is in the grave would benefit from that plant which is praising Allah and it may cause some light to lighten their grave as long as that plant remained moist and fresh. The other scholars said not only is it not mustahab to do such but it's not even something permissible. It's not even legislated in the religion that such should ever be done because it is an act of worship and every act of worship requires an evidence and there is no evidence in the Islamic law to affirm that this action was meant to be followed by the people and that after the Prophet ﷺ, the people should follow him in that action and do as he did. First, they said, their argument against such practice, they said that this is an individual specific case and the wisdom of it is unknown to us. And for this reason, the Prophet ﷺ never repeated this action after doing it for the people in those two graves. He never did it for anyone else after that. So they said the wisdom or the reasoning behind it, how it works or should anyone do it is unknown. And the Prophet ﷺ himself never did it again. Secondly, they said the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, not one of them ever repeated this action of the Prophet ﷺ after him. Except what has been reported from Burayda ibn Husayb, radiallahu anhu, it is reported that he requested, after he died, he requested that after he died, that uh, to have some uh, similar plant or branch or something placed on his grave. This is the only case that's known of anyone يعني, following this practice or at least requesting it. Uh, third, as for the tasbih or the praising or glorification or declaring Allah being free from any defect, the tasbih of the fresh plant or stem or branch as for this being especially for the fresh plant and not also including the one that's not fresh or dried up, whoever says that it only includes the fresh one and not the other one, then they said, what about the saying of Allah, وَإِن مِن شَيْءٍ إِلَّا يُصَبِّحُ بِحَمْدِهِ And there's nothing in the creation except that it is يُصَبِّحُ بِحَمْدِهِ It is declaring the greatness of Allah and praising Him. يعني, including whether it's fresh or dried, everything in the creation is making tasbih of Allah and praise of Allah. So they said, then this argument is not legitimate. Because if it was يعني, that everything in the creation praises Allah and the reasoning for the, the use of these trees or branches is because while it's praising Allah, the person in the grave would benefit from it, then even after it's dried up, it would still be praising Allah because everything in the creation Ya'ani declares the tasbih of Allah and the praise of Allah. Fresh or dry. And finally they said, even if we, for the sake of argument, even if we say that the wisdom behind the placing of these two halves of this branch in the graves of these two people who are being punished, even if the reasoning or the wisdom behind it is something that we can understand and it was for the praising that or the tasbih 
or the praising of Allah that the branch is doing and that it would benefit the person in the grave, then they said, we argue that if that was the fact, it would be limited to the case that is the same as the case in which it was done by the Prophet That is, it would be limited to the case in which it became known to someone by revelation from Allah that someone in a particular grave was being punished, then they would do as the Prophet ﷺ did, put a plant in their grave so that the punishment would be reduced. Yeah, I mean, if that was really the reasoning behind it, then we should only apply it to the same case as the Prophet ﷺ applied it. That is in the case of the person who we know is being punished in the grave. And then we should do as the Prophet ﷺ did to reduce that punishment. Al-Qadi Iyad, one of the great scholars of hadith, uh, said that the reasoning for putting this branch or twig in the grave is a matter of the unseen. It's something from the unseen. We don't know about it. It's something of the unseen. And how do we know it's something of the unseen? Because the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith, or it was said, he said to his companions, uh, that those two are being punished. And the punishment that happens to anyone in the grave is known only by revelation. It's a matter of the unseen. We don't see anyone. We cannot see the people being punished. And we don't hear their screaming from their punishment. Although other creation or other things in the creation can hear it and witness that, but the human being does not witness it. So this is something of the unseen. And therefore, it's not permissible to make qiyas based on this which the Prophet ﷺ did uh, from his knowledge of the unseen or the revelation of Allah when Allah caused him to see or to know about their punishment in the grave. Uh, we cannot see or know about these unseen things. Therefore, we cannot make qiyas between, uh, for that which is unknown or that which is unseen. And therefore, the, I mean, this practice should have been left uh, as something particular or peculiar based on yeah, and the knowledge of the unseen that Allah gave to the Prophet ﷺ, and that knowledge is not given to us, therefore we should not practice such. And Allah knows best. Uh, in any case, it's sufficient. The fact that the Prophet ﷺ didn't do it himself ever again, nor did his companions do such, that's sufficient proof for us to avoid this practice. If it had been something that was legislated, the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, they were the closest to him, most knowledgeable of his practice and most yani, serious in seeking all that was good, if it was something good to do, they would have done it. And if they left it, then we also follow their practice and leave it. Uh, this hadith, in closing, he mentions six points that are derived from this hadith. The first of them from this hadith is the confirmation of azab al-qabr of punishment in the grave, that it is a fact, the punishment in the grave is established and confirmed in this hadith, and it is something uh, that is well known, and it is the madhab of the majority of the imams of the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It is the correct opinion that there is punishment in the grave. Second, from this hadith, al-imam al-Nawi said, in this hadith we also understand that urine, that urine is a unclean thing, najasa. Yani from this hadith we understand that urine is unclean because those people were being punished. 
because of the uncleanliness that they didn't protect themselves from. Third, uh, that the absence of protecting oneself from najasa is the cause for punishment. Therefore, it is obligatory to protect oneself from these unclean things, as this hadith indicates that the urination was the reason, or that urination, urine has a special characteristic, or it is something peculiar to urine, that it is a cause of the punishment in the grave. And this is confirmed in the hadith that's reported by Al-Hakim in his Mustadraq, and Ibn Khuzayma in his Sahih, that the Prophet said, أَكْثَرُوا عَذَابَ الْقَبْرُ مِنَ الْبَوْلِ That most of the punishment in the grave is from urine. And Qala Ibn Hajj al-Asqalani said that this hadith is Sahih al-Isnad. Its Isnad or chain of narratives is authentic. Also from this hadith, number three, we understand the prohibition of an-namima or carrying tales between the people uh, and that it is a cause of punishment in the grave also. And that this prohibition is a very severe prohibition. The punishment for it is severe. Number four, we understand the mercy of the Prophet ﷺ to his companions and his care and concern to protect them and keep them far away from any harm or evil. And number five, we understand from this hadith that we should cover the sins or the faults of others as the Prophet ﷺ covered the faults of those people by not mentioning their names and perhaps it was intentional that he didn't uncover their identity. And finally, number six, the saying of the Prophet ﷺ, ما يعذبان في كبير يعني that they were not being punished for something major. Uh, that is, that they were not being punished for something which was very, very major or difficult to avoid. For surely leaving a namima or backbiting or tail carrying and protecting oneself from urination is not of those difficult things. Yeah, and it's not of those actions that's very, very difficult to avoid or to stay away from. And at the same time, the punishment for those actions was very severe because of uh, what is the result of those actions. Yeah, and it's the harm that is caused by those actions. And Imam Nawawi mentioned something about the harm from them. He said that the harm from Namima is that it causes corruption in the society and amongst the people. And the harm from not protecting oneself from urine is that the person's body or clothes become soiled with najasa and therefore their purification is nullified and therefore their salat is nullified and this is a very serious matter. Uh, there's one final point that uh, Imam Nawawi mentions and it's important that we should uh, just mention this. In the narration of Al-Bukhari uh, we saw as I gave it to you in the second uh, translation of the hadith in the narration of Bukhari the Prophet ﷺ said that they are not being punished for something kabir or something major. And then he said, وَإِنَّهُ لَكَبِيرٌ يعني, But verily it is something major. And in another narration in Bukhari, he said that they are not being punished for something major. بَلْ إِنَّهُ كَبِيرٌ On the contrary, it is in fact something major. Yani it is a major sin. So this narration of Bukhari makes us to understand, there is difference of opinion amongst the scholars here, but it makes us to understand according to this narration, that these two acts are actually major sins, that they are not minor sins. And the difference between the two narrations can be understood, the narration of Muslim, it can be understood that it was not a big thing to avoid, or a difficult thing to avoid, and the narration of Bukhari, we understand from it that in fact, it was not considered by some as a major sin, but in fact it is a major sin. The Prophet ﷺ said, وَإِنَّهُ لَكَبِيرٌ Verily, it is a major sin. 
and in the other narration bel innahu kabir yani for sure it is really a major sin and there are some opinions of the scholars about this let us suffice just to say this that there are two narrations here uh, and one of them seems to indicate that these things are not difficult to avoid that's the meaning of kabir here and the other one indicates that the meaning of kabir here is that it is a major sin that the prophet ﷺ said they were not being punished for major sin but in fact yes it was really a major sin in any case there is something that we should avoid the punishment for it is severe let us be warned from it subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik if there are any comments or corrections or questions inshallah um, before we go to salat we have about 5 minutes or so we may take any questions if there are any Uh, if the sisters have any questions, uh, you may send them now. Uh, Abdul Hadim is coming to the door. If you have any questions in writing. Naam. Naam. Number 14. There is difference of opinion amongst the scholars about it. But according to the explanation of the Sheikh in, in the book that we are studying now, his explanation and some of the scholars also explained it as such that the purpose of this uh, spearheaded stick it was in order to use it as a pole that they would attach some cloth or curtain or screen to it so that they may uh, yani cover the prophet sallallahu when he was relieving himself yani just like you stick a pole or something in the ground and tie a screen to it from one side to another to hold it up it was used as a pole to hold up the screen that they screened the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam with it and some others said had other opinions al-hafiz ibn hajar al-asqalani in fath al-bari mentions a number of different opinions different from this uh, one of them he said and he said that this was the strongest opinion and allah knows best he said that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam whenever he used to relieve himself he used to then make wudu and whenever he used to make wudu he used to make salat so he used to use that spear as his sutra yani when he was out in the field he used to use the sutra so that if anyone or anything passed in front of him while he was praying it would not interrupt his prayer so he used to keep that spear with him because whenever he went to relieve himself he would then make wudu and whenever he used to make wudu he used to make salat two rak'ah with his wudu so it's sunnah yani it's mustahab that whenever you make wudu you should make two rak'ah So Ibn Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar Al-Asqalani said that one of the opinions that the reason why they used to carry this stick was when the Prophet ﷺ would relieve himself afterwards he would make wudu and afterwards he would make salat and he would use that stick as a sutra yani to protect himself. You know that whenever you pray you should never pray except you are uh, facing something as a guard or as a protection from anyone walking in front of you directly in front of you between your place of prostration and yourself yani the distance between where you are standing and where you would prostrate no one should walk within that distance therefore whenever you are praying alone not in congregation but whenever you are praying alone you should have something in front of you either a pole or a stick or some high object the bookshelf yani the pillow in the masjid or a wall or anything but there should be something in front of you as a sutra whenever you are praying alone so that no one would interrupt your prayer by walking in front of you and there are many authentic hadith concerning such 
where the Prophet وسلم, said that if any one of you prays, that he should pray towards the sutra. And in other hadith, he said that when any one of you prays, he should pray towards the sutra and he should be near to that sutra, close to it. Uh, uh, isn't there a hadith about avoiding letting one's saliva into a drinking vessel? May Allah reward you. I don't know the hadith about uh, avoiding letting saliva enter one's drinking vessel. But of course, there are many hadith which we don't know. We don't know all of the hadith. I don't recall this particular hadith, although we can check, inshallah, if anyone, uh, the questioner who sent this question or anyone else knows this hadith, then uh, please uh, point it out so that we may share it with others. And if I am able to find it also, I will uh, try to bring it back in a next or in another meeting uh, and mention the text of the hadith so that it will be يعني, uh, some new knowledge for me as well as whoever don't, doesn't know this hadith previously. I'm not really familiar with the hadith but inshallah we can look for it and if anyone knows it they may bring it uh, to share it with us. وَلَقَدْ أَرْسَلْنَا مُوسَى بِآيَاتِنَا 